COVID cases are climbing again, inflation and interest rates are climbing, and the climbing cost of condominium reforms. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. COVID-19 infections are high in South Florida, but don't expect any masking requirements from local governments. Are we prepared for the possibility of another summer surge? And then, how worried is a top Federal Reserve official about a recession? Part of my job is to worry. I'm concerned about every possibility. A recession in 2022 is not my base case. Jobs, inflation, housing, and economic disparity with the head of the regional Federal Reserve Bank. Plus, Florida lawmakers okay new rules for condominiums after the Surfside collapse, including new inspections and more emergency money. It's ahead on our program, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. This week's school shooting at an elementary school in Texas found its way inside a Broward County courtroom. The courtroom in Fort Lauderdale is where lawyers and a judge are trying to pick a jury to decide if another school shooter lives in prison for the rest of his life or is put to death. Nicholas Cruz has admitted to killing 17 people and hurting 17 others at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland. Melissa McNeil is one of the lawyers defending the shooter. This community can unfortunately identify with what is happening in Texas. These are the individuals that will sit in judgment of Mr. Cruz. This is a question we need to ask. Carolyn McCann is a state prosecutor on the case. She argued against asking potential jurors about specific shootings. There's had 27 mass shootings, school shootings this year. There's going to be more, unfortunately. This is a crime that has happened before, and it will happen again. And we cannot break and keep editing the questions and tailoring them every time something terrible and unbelievable happens, Your Honor. The judge overseeing the case, Elizabeth Shares, ruled that potential jurors could be asked general questions about their feelings, but not specifically about the Texas tragedy. WLRN's Broward County reporter, Gerard Albert III, is with us. He's out reporting in the field today on the telephone. Gerard, tell us about how this argument this week in court uh, kind of went, how it played out over asking about uh, other mass shootings. Sure thing. And it's not something that, unfortunately, is new. Uh, It was brought up also after the Buffalo shooting. Mm -hmm. Um, Before jurors were brought in, Um, the defense attorney asked uh, for a second to talk about this, and and she was very emotional. Um, She had to stop and pause many times to stop from crying, and you heard her there ask that, um, you know, these these people uh, that are going to be on the jury, most of them will will remember or understand what it's like uh, as a community to go through this mass shooting event. And um, the judge at first was hesitant, um, and and then a, a rare ruling uh, she kind of sided with the defense here in terms of we can ask about mass shootings, um, but we can't specifically mention Texas. Uh, the defense still did object to that. Uh, she specifically wanted to mention Texas, given its similarities to the Parkland shooting. But uh, it was, I guess, a, a, a small win for the defense there. And so uh, as as they move forward with jury selection, uh, were any potential jurors asked general questions about school shootings? Well, it's, it's funny because the first group of jurors that came in, it was 12 jurors, and they weren't even asked about it before one of them brought it up, uh, saying, uh, this is not a verbatim quote, but we all know what happened yesterday, and, and several mm-hmm. other jurors nodded. 
um, in agreement. So they had, a, you know, it, it was it was clearly on everybody's mind without having them having to be asked about it. And so, uh, on their mind, did ultimately um, a, a defense lawyer ask a question to a juror? And the the questions have been about their feelings towards mass shootings. Mm-hmm. Something like um, when this ma- when when the Parkland shooting happened, or when another when a mass shooting happens, what is your initial reaction hmm. to what punishment the shooter should get? And that's about as specific as they can get. Okay. Some Parkland family members you reported were in the courtroom this week. Uh, what was their reaction to all of this as the the Texas tragedy uh, came into the Broward County courtroom? Well, it's, it's been a mix. I mean, it, it's, uh, it's sympathy. It's this club that obviously no one wants to belong to. But um, they're sad, but, but most of them are, are frustrated. I mean, they, they went through this four years ago, and, you know, their sentiment, a lot of them, is that this shouldn't have to happen again. And their, their frustration of the lack of uh, federal legislation on it um, even statewide, I mean, things were passed after Parkland, mm-hmm. but um, there are people that want to pass, they, they, they want to pass uh, even even uh, more restrictive laws around, especially assault rifles. And what, what's been the frequency of uh, family members, of Parkland family members in the courtroom during jury selection, during this process? It's been sparse so far. Um, uh, Tom Hoyer, who's, who's Luke, Luke Hoyer's father, who uh, uh, Luke Hoyer died in the, in the Parkland shooting, mm-hmm. he he comes, uh, I, I guess I would say frequently. The uh, jury selection's only been going on for about uh, two weeks or so. Um, I, I'm sorry, the the amount of days jury selection's right. been going on amounts to two weeks with all the delays. So there, there really haven't been too many parents in there. And so give us the status of the jury selection. Uh, what kind of progress, first of all, was made this week? Uh, you saw about a dozen more jurors make it through to that third round. Uh, the new line of uh, questioning that's changed this week is we're seeing the judge ask again, has anything changed since last month when you guys were asked about hardships, whether your job will pay you or not, whether you're a caretaker or not, um, on Wednesday 18 jurors were brought in and asked that question, and six of them said, yes, my situation has changed. I'm a caretaker for my mother, and she's she's fallen ill, or, oh, I start school soon. So um, that question's being asked, and, and it's, it's cutting down the pool of jurors even further. Yeah, and that was the first-round question. That was the qualifier question to move from that first yeah. round into the current second round. And those delays... Um, don't help that, right? Things change right. so much in a month. It's been a month since they came in. It'll be maybe another month till they come back for the third round of jury selection. So it, it, it's going to be difficult. That's, I think, why they want also eight alternates uh, in addition to the 12 jurors that are going to sit. Uh, the judge still expects the actual testimony to uh, begin uh, mid to late June? That's the schedule, yes, late June. Uh, I believe the last week in June is where it's set for right now, and uh, we'll see yep. how that moves along. There are, again, more illnesses on the unspecified illnesses on the defense team, but they were able to work through them this week, and um, you know, we'll see how that goes on next week.
WLRN Broward County reporter Gerard Albert III with us here talking about the Nicholas Cruz death penalty trial jury selection process. Gerard, thanks for sharing your reporting with us again this week. Of course. Thank you. South Florida is expected to see record numbers of visitors for the Memorial Day holiday weekend. At the same time, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is warning about increasing COVID cases and hospitalizations here in our region. According to the agency's COVID-19 community level, South Florida is at a high risk level. And that comes with a recommendation from the CDC to wear a mask when indoors in public. That's just a recommendation, though. It's not a mandate, as local leaders have decided not to enforce not to put in place another mask requirement. So how do we balance this really want and need to return to normalcy with vigilance against the ever-present and ever-evolving COVID-19 virus? Have you uh, stopped responding to this uh, surge here? Are we prepared for the possibility of a summer surge of cases here in South Florida? Dan Chang is with us, healthcare reporter with our news partner, the Miami Herald. Dan, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. What's the state of the virus heading into the uh, Memorial Day weekend? Well, I think you just ticked it off pretty well, Tom. Uh, according to the CDC, we have a high uh, community level of, of COVID-19 in Miami-Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, and Monroe counties. And what that means is that the number of cases are increasing, but so are the number of patient hospital admissions. And, and those are those are two of the measures that the CDC uses to determine that or to calculate that, that community level. But what it means is that cases are going up and the hospital capacity is reducing and we need to take precautions because uh, otherwise things could get worse. And we all know what that's like. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'll ask you about the possibility of those precautions in a moment. But around the data, so much more home testing going on now. We're not seeing those big long line of cars like we were seeing, for instance, over the uh, winter holidays. Uh, you know, how accurate are these are these numbers, do you think, or do the, do the epidemiologists think in terms of community levels? Well, I think that epidemiologists have, have known that, that the, the number of reported cases is always an undercount uh, of the true rate of infection happening in the community. Uh, not, not just because of home tests, of course, because, but because some people are asymptomatic and mm -hmm. some people just don't get tested because they, they don't feel like they're sick enough. Maybe they think it's a cold and they get confused. Uh, but, it, you know, with the, with the increase of home tests, for sure, this is an undercount. But if you look at uh, uh, just the, what is reported, right? So it's 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 less than what we know is out there. The rate is already really high. The positivity rate in Miami-Dade was was nearly twenty percent, right? That means nearly one out of all every five tests uh, given in Miami-Dade or or to a Miami-Dade resident came back positive. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's an astonishingly high rate, and and it means that it's spreading pretty easily. And that's why the CDC is recommending that people wear masks indoors in public regardless of whether they're vaccinated, because it's not about protecting yourself, it's about protecting others. And uh, that's the message that seems to be difficult to get across. We're talking with Miami Herald healthcare reporter Dan Chang about uh, the um, increase, the pretty significant increase in positivity rates of COVID-19 here in South Florida as we head into the Memorial Day weekend. 800-743-WLRN, our phone number to join our conversation. What questions, what experiences? Uh, have you had here uh, lately with this uh, new COVID increase that we've been experiencing over the past several weeks in South Florida? 800-743-9576 or on social media on Twitter at WLRN. Before we talk about some of those uh, recommendations from the CDC and whether or not they'd be implemented here in South Florida, Dan, what do we know about the who's getting infected? Uh, any data sure. on you know the vaccination status, ages, those kinds of things? A previous infection status status of some of these individuals? 
Yes, and so uh, there, there is some some demographic uh, information. For instance, in Miami Dade, the median age of the people who are who are coming back with a confirmed case uh, is about forty four years old. Uh, but you know, the, the 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 there's still a large number of children and young adults whose vaccination rates have always lagged, who are also uh, coming back uh, with positive tests. So about thirteen percent of five to seventeen year olds and twenty one percent of young adults uh, who, who are between. 18 to 34. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and those are increases again over, over prior weeks. Uh, so it, it's it's certainly, uh, 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 we all know that uh, uh, vaccination now, that, that there are, are, are recommendations for a booster for everyone who's eligible. And it's now the recommendation is all the way down through young adults and, and, and the children. Uh, the second booster, you know, it, 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 it it's more recommended for for older adults who who are are are, are at higher risk of, of becoming severely ill. But there's a lot of immunity built up, as you alluded to, a lot of prior infections and vaccination, which has made this less dangerous for more people. But again, there are still people out there. When it spreads this easily, there are vulnerable people out there who who it will find. Yeah, indeed. Uh, and, um, you know, as, as the uh, infection rate has grown, I'm sure all of us in our own social and family circles don't have to go nearly as far uh, to know someone who has been infected, if it's not ourselves, uh, compared to what that status was like a year ago or even two years ago. Uh, still on the data here, uh, Dan, because you have such a great grasp on it, there was an error. There was a mistake in the CDC's numbers which comes, the numbers that the CDC uses to compute its community risk level come from the Florida Department of Health. What was the error? Has it been fixed? Uh, and how did that affect, do you think, kind of the communication of all this? Well, I think that it continues to make this more confusing than it already is. And, and as we know, the CDC has changed guidance on many things, uh, including, uh, you know, how long you should be in, in, in quarantine or isolation after you get sick and whether you should test or not have a negative test before you, you return to, to your normal activities and in public. Uh, so what happened here, Tom, is that uh, the, you know, the CDC did not explain exactly how this error occurred, but they did not count the numbers of cases last week uh, for any county in Florida. And because that community level is calculated using the numbers of cases, the rate of, of uh, the number of cases per 100,000 and hospital admissions and hospital capacity, uh, uh, they weren't able to calculate that community level. So it was erroneously on medium. And I asked the Florida Department of Health about this. They told me that they sent the information over twice to the CDC. Uh, but they didn't have an explanation for it either. But uh, that that uh, CDC uh, COVID data tracker that is really mm -hmm. helpful and that will show you the daily changes, that's been updated. They, they update that community level every Thursday. So yesterday they put it at the appropriate level, not just for Miami-Dade, or for many, many other uh, uh, counties right. in Florida, including in Central Florida and, and uh, uh, Alachua County as yeah. well. Okay, so. Well, Dan Robb is listening in uh, from Fort Lauderdale and wants to join the conversation. Thanks, Rob, for giving us a call. Go ahead. You're on the radio. Sure. Uh, me and my wife, we caught COVID last week. Mm. How you feeling? Um, uh, just getting back on my feet. Terrible for five days. Mm. Oh, we, we both had vaccines. I had the, the booster. Mm -hmm. We were taking precautions, wearing masks. Caught it anyway. Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm finally feeling good. And uh, boy, oh boy, take care, folks. <laughs> How's your wife oh, doing? Can... 
How's your wife uh, doing, Rob? Uh, she's much better, too. Okay. Uh, oh, so, and we're in our 70s with pre-existing oh. conditions. It was terrible. Terrible. Have you, ha- have you had it before, Rob? No. So your first no. time getting it. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Were you, did you have to avail yourself of any of the uh, uh, treatment uh, options? Uh, oh, man, I took Tylenol like crazy. <laughs> but, you, but it only lasts, the Tylenol, you can only take it every six hours. Yeah, right. It only took away the symptoms for three hours. Mm. So I, three hours of sleep, I was up, aching and aching. So mm. I am so sleep deprived, the both of us. It, 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 was, it was a real... Uh, a mess. I'm 73. You know, it's tough. Yeah, yeah. It's Ro- tough. Ro- Rob, uh, thanks so much for sharing uh, sure. the story with us. It's important for folks to hear this. And uh, boy, uh, you know, uh, speedy recovery for you and your wife. And uh, hopefully the spread, at least in your household, is over. Won't go any further. Good luck, Rob. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing that story. Uh, 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 certainly a story that many of us personally have heard in different types yeah. of environments, right, Dan? I mean, you know, folks who are vaccinated take precautions and breakthrough cases. We used to call them breakthrough cases. Now they're now we just refer to them as infections. Correct. And that's because the virus has mutated so much and, and so rapidly. And, and, and these subvariants of Omicron, uh, which was already more contagious than Delta are even even more contagious. But I think that uh, Rob's story is, is also indicative of, of, of the severity, or I should say the less severe illness that lots of people are having. Because part of the thing is that even though you know a bunch of people who got COVID, probably very few of them went to the hospital and hopefully even fewer of them have passed away. And so that, that causes people to sort of let their guard down more and say, well, I'm not going to wear a mask anymore. Or, uh, you know, to perhaps not follow other advice. Right. And, and that's that's one of those tricky things to try to communicate. And that that it is tricky. And that advice from the CDC, when uh, you live in a county that's red, as you do in South Florida, it is at a high risk level. The CDC recommendations are to wear a mask in public indoors. Uh, Dan, what are local leaders saying about that uh, recommendation from the CDC and whether or not that's going to translate into a requirement? Well, I, I talked to the mayors of, of Broward and Miami-Dade, and uh, Mayor Eugene in Broward said he doesn't uh, he doesn't believe in mask mandates anymore, and certainly he feels that if somebody uh, uh, wants to wear a mask and they're comfortable wearing a mask, then, then they certainly ought to. Uh, but he he he's not you know he's not envisioning a return to mask mandates, and and to be fair, neither is is Mayor Daniela Levine Cava in Miami-Dade. Uh, what's interesting to me though is that the county administrator in Broward issued a memo in April, I want to say about April 20th, April 19th, uh, strongly recommending that people wear masks inside uh, county buildings and on county property. So, um, you know, even though there is no mask mandate, there is a a strong recommendation, but it's coming from the county administrator, not from the mayor, who probably has a much bigger platform. And, and, you know, the other important thing, Tom, is at the community level, when it gets high, it's not just a recommendation for individuals, it's also a recommendation for state and local governments to, to, Mm -hmm. you know, to consider setting specific recommendations. So um, it it just, I, I, I suppose, similar to the other issues that we've seen with pandemic, People aren't all singing with one voice. And so it makes it kind of hard to, to 
decipher the message. Yeah, I think you referred to this in your reporting this week as muddled communication, Dan. That's right. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> Daniel Chang. It's a muddled message. It is yeah. a muddled message. Daniel Chang, the uh, healthcare reporter for our news partner, the Miami Herald, cutting through that muddled uh, message uh, for us here today on the South Florida Roundup. Dan, uh, always great to have you. Best of uh, health and happiness to you and your family. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. Still to come on our program, inflation, jobs, recession worries. We're going to hear from the regional Federal Reserve Bank boss next on the South Florida Roundup. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening and supporting public broadcasting. Inflation backed off its recent high in April. Did you miss it? Probably not alone, because prices continue increasing close to their fastest pace in more than a generation. Now, this is helping increase interest rates. Cost of borrowing is going up, including for home mortgages. Now, at the same time, the unemployment rate is at historic lows, but worries about an economic recession are building. Now, we spoke about all this in the South Florida economy with Raphael Bostic. He is the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, which includes Florida in its region. President Bostic, welcome back to WLRN. Are you comfortable with the current pace of higher interest rates from the Federal Reserve? The short answer is yes, I am comfortable. We are in a really uncharted space in terms of how the economy has progressed and where it's come from. And I think that we are moving towards a neutral stance away from our emergency posture much faster than we have in the last 20 years. Uh, I think that owes in part to uh, inflation increasing much faster than we've seen maybe in 50 or 60 years. And so I think our steady but measured pace, beginning purposefully away from uh, our maximum accommodation, I think is exactly the right thing to do. And because of all the other uncertainties that you see out there, going too hard could lead to unforeseen and unanticipated effects that that, um, we want to avoid. That concern you articulate there about being careful not to go too hard, is that central banker speak for even higher interest rates at an even accelerated pace than what we've seen over the past few months? That's one way you could put it. If inflation does not respond uh, as rapidly and as intently as we would like, then we may have to go harder and push faster. That's not my base case today, but you know I've been surprised throughout this pandemic as to how rapidly things have evolved. And so we just have to be ready for any eventuality. How concerned are you about an economic recession in the next, say, 12 months? Part of my job is to worry. I'm concerned about every possibility. What I would say is a recession in 2022 is not my base case. There's a lot of momentum in the economy today. If you look at job growth on a monthly basis, it's averaging something around 500000 a month for the last 10 months or so. By any standard, that is inc- an incredibly powerful and strong economy moving forward. And so s- slowing down off of that will still leave us in a strong place. If we, if we go from 500000 a month to 300000 a month, you know, pre-pandemic, people were jumping up and down on 300000 a month. And I think that perspective is really important to keep in mind. We're starting from a place that's much stronger than it usually is when we're in these positions. And 
And that gives me some comfort that, that we have um, some space to play with in terms of moving our policy. Let me ask you about another concern, and I know you're going to tell me you get paid to worry, but how concerned are you about the sharp drop in the stock market that we've seen this spring? Well, you know, I do get paid to worry, but the stock market is not one of my metrics of assessment. You know, we have two standards that we look at. One is maximum employment. We've got historically low unemployment rates. We've got historically high job creation rates, employment rates. We have historically low unemployment rates. So in terms of our maximum employment mandate, I think we're doing pretty good. Uh, and then on the other side is, is stable prices. And that's where we have a challenge. Inflation, in other words. It's high uh, and it's too high relative to our 2% target. And so we've got to make sure we move to get that back in, in line with where we'd like it to be. You know, the stock market, there's a lot of volatility there. I understand that. For me, I think it is not super surprising given the many things that we've done in terms of our policy and the forward guidance that we've given in terms of the war in Ukraine and the uncertainty associated with that. And really diverse views about how fast supply chains and the like are going to resolve. When you have that much uncertainty, what I've seen is the forecast from people who look at these markets has broadened. And we just have a much wider diversity of views than we often have. And when you have a wider diversity of views, I would expect there to be more volatility in these markets because you know people are going to see the same thing and interpret it as meaning something quite different. Do you think that we've seen peak inflation in the United States? Uh, I hope we have. You know, my goal, and, and I think the committee has started moving. The committee is the Federal Open Market Committee, Interest Rate Setting Committee of the Federal Reserve. The group I sit with uh, set interest rates. Um, yeah, we have taken action to try to bring inflation down. Uh, the first action was several months ago. That should start to transmit through the economy, and it should translate to inflation coming down. In that regard, you know, I'm hopeful that uh, we have seen a peak, but you know, things happen. Like we, I was you know, struck and really influenced when the Ukraine war came, occurred and started. You know, one thing we've seen throughout this pandemic is even the pandemic itself was tremendously unexpected. I've become reluctant to want to project too far into the future with any certainty about exactly what's going to happen, but rather I'm going to observe, watch things really closely, and then adapt policy based on what I see. How sticky do you think inflation is, the pricing pressures that all Americans have experienced from washing machines to groceries to, to used new cars? So the inflation we have is really around, uh, has been, it's been driven by uh, an imbalance between demand and supply. All right, we have very high aggregate demand and we, have, we know we have low supply because supply chain challenges and the like. To the extent that the gap between those stays high and reduces in a relatively at a relatively slow pace, then inflation will be sticky. But to the extent if we can get a significant movement where aggregate demand kind of comes down off of these very high levels and some of the supply issues resolve, if that narrows quickly, then inflation can move quickly as well. So it will really just be a function of the efficacy of our policy and how effective our policy is in hitting on the demand side, and then the resolution of some of the supply challenges. President Bostic, what could be the impact of efforts to reduce inflation 
on the services economy, which is so dominant in the United States in the Southeast uh, region, and particularly the hospitality tourism industry, which is so dominant here in South Florida? Well, I think there are really two things to, to be mindful of when we think about how our policies might flow through in terms of uh, the economy. The first is that we do have a lot of excess demand. There's a report that the federal government issues on a monthly basis that says, how many jobs did employers put out want ads for? And then what share of those jobs was filled? Uh, and over the last nine or 10 months, the share that's been filled has been 60%, right? Which tells me that we have like a lot more demand for jobs than we have workers, which means that we can see the economy slow down and a big chunk of the effect is going to be to reduce that gap between the jobs that are posted and the jobs that are filled. And so that'll be the first hit. Like when you think about hospitality, you, and you guys know this at least better than I do probably, it has rebounded quite a bit. There has been a lot of energy. Uh, you know, uh, Americans are out and about. They're really uh, spending in a very strong way. And margins for a lot of these companies are at, are at very high levels. So backing down off of those high margins right now should not translate, in my view, to significant loss of jobs or any of those sorts of things, you know? So for me, I, I do think there's still a lot of positive potential out there. I'm hopeful that our policies and how the economy will evolve will help reduce these tensions and make it easier for uh, a more sustainable and more um, historical type of labor market uh, relative to where we are, which I think has been you know, extremely tight. With that tightness, employers have responded with higher pay, as you know, uh, it, it responding with other types of financial benefits or incentives, sign-on bonuses, and those types of things. That can be sticky when it comes to inflation, can it? When you're seeing those wages increase as employers are scrambling to retain employees as well as attract employees in this record historic low unemployment environment. So I would say a little differently. I think they can be sticky in levels, but they may not be sticky in the rate of change. And that's, a, that's an important distinction. And you know, one of the things that we've tried to do is ask employers, you know, every employer tells us, you know, given where inflation has gone, they need to respond to that with wages for their workers because their workers are feeling and they're very aware that they're falling behind. In our survey, so we have a survey of business inflation expectations, and we have another survey of, of CFOs. Chief financial officers. Right, that we do with uh, Duke University and the, Fed, the Richmond Fed. We've been asking the question, okay, we know what your increase was this year. Are you expecting it to be the same increase next year? And the answer to for most is no. The so-called blunt instrument of the Federal Reserve to try to stabilize prices, aka go after inflation, is the cost of cash, overnight cash in the Federal Reserve system, the Federal Reserve uh, Fed Funds interest rate, which has risen substantially, but is still historically low. The South Florida housing market has been extremely strong throughout this pandemic. How vulnerable is housing in the Southeast, President Bostic, to higher mortgage borrowing rates? Your market is a very unique market as it is driven by shifts in demand from many, many different sources. So uh, we know that there's been a transition, a shift of 
a lot of finance people from New York and the New York metro area that have moved into Florida. They're putting incredible upward pressure on prices. And the thing that is challenging is that the markets they're coming from are more expensive markets. They're higher cost markets. So that the prices that, you, that they're seeing, which are high for people who have been in Miami for a long time, don't seem that high. And that creates a really interesting and challenging dynamic because it is certainly the case that as we increase our policy rate, the cost of capital and financing for mortgage is going to go up as well. We've seen that already, right? In the last couple of months, the 30-year mortgage has gone up more than two percentage points. That's a lot. That's almost, almost double in some instances, which is going to mean that fewer people are going to be able to afford prices at those very high levels. But if you're coming from New York, they weren't high levels to begin with. And so I'm not sure how much it will affect their demand for product. My guess is that things will cool a bit, but cooling a bit probably doesn't equal prices actually falling uh, for quite some time. And, and But ultimately, we'll just have to see how things play out. One of the other techniques the Federal Reserve used to support the pandemic economy was so-called quantitative easing. And among those strategies was to buy all different kinds of, of IOUs, of bonds, including mortgage bonds. The Fed, in addition to raising its target interest rate, has announced it's going to be reducing that quantitative easing uh, and not buy as many uh, mortgage bonds and other IOUs. How could that affect the borrowing environment for real estate, particularly here in South Florida? It could also have a, an impact on the cost of, of borrowing. In other words, higher cost of borrowing. Right. Uh, as we withdraw, perceptions of risk are probably going to shift to a place where people think there's a little more risk. And I actually think it'll just be a little more risk, but that extra risk will then necessarily translate into higher price. So I would expect you know, our withdrawal to uh, increase the price of the mortgage capital. But let me say one other thing. Our economy needs to stand on its own. And you know, we, we've done all the things that we did really to make sure that the economy didn't collapse. What are the signs you're looking for to be more and more confident that the economy is standing on its own? As we remove our accommodation, both in terms of interest rates, increasing our interest rates, and also in terms of selling our mortgage-backed securities, that markets continue to function so that there aren't concerns about, uh, is there capital to cover the purchases that, that are out there? Do uh, firms still have access to capital markets in ways that allow them to meet payroll? Do we still see very strong job creation and innovation and investments and all those sorts of things at levels comparable to where we were pre-pandemic or even in sort of the longer term history? And are we not seeing deterioration of credit quality and excessive risk-taking, which would suggest that people are, are moving into places that may not be as prudent as we would think? And we're also not seeing significant accelerations in precariousness, uh, whether it be more people losing their homes or being evicted or losing their jobs, any number of these things, uh, because that would be another sign that the economy is not working for everyone. You have been a leading voice within the Federal Reserve, the central banking system on economic racial disparities. 
it led to some discussion about how the Federal Reserve thinks about the dual mandate of full employment and price stability. How have economic disparities entered into the Federal Reserve's thinking about its responsibilities as it is removing its pandemic uh, stimulus accommodations? So that's a very, very good question. You know, for me, I think uh, a couple things. So one, um, if we don't have price stability, that's going to be a problem. And it is actually going to hurt poorer people. It's going to hurt people with lower savings amounts and lower wealth. And we know that African-Americans and Latinos uh, are worse off in those dimensions. So if we don't arrest this high inflation, that's going to be a problem in terms of from a distributional perspective. And that's got to be top of line. At the same time, you know, the other thing that we know is that um, the longer that the economy expands, the longer that our economy expands, the better off, relatively speaking, African-Americans, Latinos, and other ethnic minorities do. And so what I'm hoping we're able to accomplish as we remove our accommodation is do it in a way that we continue to prolong the expansion. But right now, if you look at the disparity in unemployment rates between African-Americans and you know, white workers, it's actually lower than it has been. It's, I mean, the unemployment rate is still higher, but the gap has shrunk considerably. Uh, and I think that is a byproduct of us continuing to have an economy that grows. And that's really what our policies need to do uh, as we move forward. So we've got to be very careful. There is certainly a risk that we go a little too far. You could start to see contraction. Uh, and we know that contraction usually hits those who have been least attached to the economy the hardest. Uh, and so I'd like to avoid that as possible. But there's a lot of churn and uncertainty in the marketplace. So um, it'll be hard to know exactly what that fine, discrete point is, but I'm going to try to do all I can to identify that so we minimize the amount of disruption. Speaking with Raphael Bostic, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, South Florida is in the bank's region. Still to come on this edition of the South Florida Roundup, the effort to protect condominiums. How much could it cost you and your condo association if you live in one? Join us now with your questions and concerns. 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. This week, almost a year after the collapse of the Champlain Tower South condominium building in Surfside, Florida lawmakers responded. Florida condominium buildings will be subject to new inspections and new requirements for associations to sock away money for important maintenance. State Senator Democrat Annette Tadeo hopes the legislation will give peace of mind to those living in condominiums. We will have inspections more often across the state, not just Miami-Dade County, and that's what we needed. We need people to know that there are inspectors looking out for them and letting buildings know that they have issues. For condominium buildings at least three stories tall, they'll have to be inspected 30 years after opening. If the building is within three miles of a coastline, that's 25 years, and then an inspection follows every decade thereafter. Florida House Speaker Republican Chris Sproul says the deal uh, with the deal, condominium associations have to now build up their reserve fund to fix structural issues. It was important to the House that if there's a structural integrity issue for a building, that people do what's necessary to defend the people who live there, to protect themselves by making sure they fix it and put the dollars aside to fix it. Let's talk about this. 800-743-WLRN with your questions, concerns about condominiums. Representative Daniel Perez is with us, a Republican member of the uh, Florida House of Representatives, representing part of uh, Miami-Dade County, the sponsor of this reform legislation. Representative, welcome to WLRN. Thanks for your time. 
No, thank you much. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So, under this law, condominium buildings at least three stories tall have until 2024 to get an inspection. What happens then after that inspection is done? Yeah, once that inspection is done, uh, then they're going to have to collect the reserves necessary for whatever structural component uh, was outlined in the reserve study. Part of this bill, which which goes hand in hand with the requirement to collect reserves for the structural integrity components of a building is for a reserve study to take place every 10 years. The reserve study is essentially what lays out the requirements of where an association is gonna have to collect certain funds in order to to maintain those structural integrity components moving forward. And then, so how is that reserve, we'll call it a reserve fund, it's a savings account, it's money, right? Money set aside from the condominium association, either the, the normal monthly dues or a special assessment. How is that then calculated with the reserve study and the structural inspection? Yeah, the reserve study will, will outline how much has to be collected before the use of that component comes to an end. So uh, historically, let's say a roof were to have a lifespan of 20 years mm-hmm. uh, and the reserve study, let's say it's being done right now and the association doesn't have a reserve study with regard to that roof, knowing it has 10 years left, the reserve study will outline what a projection of a replacement on that roof will be in 10 years, what the maintenance would be from now until we get to that 10 year mark and the cost on a yearly basis or on a 10 year basis. And the association would then break that down based on the reserve study and collect those funds uh, from the from the unit owners. Was there any study about the financial impact on an average condominium owner in Florida? There wasn't uh, there wasn't specifically, but but here's why. Currently, DBPR doesn't have an outline of how many buildings there are in each condominium association or each condominium neighborhood. DBPR is the state agency that regulates this, ultimately, the Department of uh, Professional. Help me out there, Representative. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. you're right. Right. The the Department of uh, Business Professional Regulations. So so, so the reason the reason that 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 it's important and why I bring that up is in the bill, each association has to notify DBPR how many buildings there are within their condominium association that fall within the three uh, stories or or more mm-hmm. um, so that DBPR can have a, a roll call of what those buildings are, where they're at, and then they can hold these associations accountable per those buildings. Currently, we don't have that roll call, so it was, it was tough for us to do a financial assessment. Are there enough inspectors in Florida to do these uh, thousands of inspections by 2024? Yeah, so I think the, the word inspection is loose, and I want to make okay. sure that we define that. There's the milestone inspection, which will be done, as you said, uh, very accurately uh, every every 10 years after a building has reached either 25 years of life or 30 years of life, depending if it's within three miles of the coast or not. Okay. But separate from that, uh, there'll be the reserve study uh, every 10 years at a minimum. It could be done more frequent if the association chooses to do so. But that can be done by a reserve specialist, an engineer, or an architect. And yes, we, we, we made it as broad as we could so that there were enough people with the right knowledge and experience uh, in order to, to, to do that, that job. So some people made an argument that only uh, specific engineers should, should have the ability to do a reserve study uh, or the inspection, and we didn't feel that that would be uh, helpful. Representative Perez, I know time's tight here, so I appreciate you creating some uh, moments here to talk to us today. Thanks. No, thank you for having me. Daniel Perez, a Republican House member in the uh, Florida House, uh, representing parts of Miami-Dade County, is the sponsor of the uh, condominium uh, reform legislation that was added to the special session this week of Florida lawmakers and approved by the Senate and House and signed into law on Thursday by Governor Ron DeSantis. Eric Glazer is back with us here on the South Florida Roundup. Glazer & Associates, longtime uh, 
experts on uh, condominium law and condominium homeowners association. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thanks hey, for thank creating some so time. What, we sure. What do you make of this uh, this reform legislation that uh, that got out of the legislature and signed into law now? Well, let me say this: uh, with one exception, with one major flaw, I think this legislature had the guts to do what needed to be done 30 years ago, except every single legislative body kept kicking the can down the road. I begged them in May of 2018, I went to a special assessment meeting at a senior citizen, uh, 55 and over community. They were crying about a $300 special assessment. Mm -hmm. I left that night and I wrote a letter to every single Florida legislator saying, I want you to know what's coming. If people can't pay a $300 special assessment, how are they going to pay a $30,000 special assessment? I said, stop allowing the waiver of reserves. Well, so you, you, it reminds me, Eric, right? There's two great days to plant a tree. One is today and one is 20 years ago. So, you know, right. t- t- today is the day, is the new day, or when this law comes into effect in the months ahead is the, is the new day. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and as you just heard Representative Perez, right, now the associations won't be able to waive those reserves. Uh, they'll, be, they'll have to do those uh, structural inspections. They'll have to do the reserve uh, studies to uh, find out how much money they need to sock away. And uh, there could be a lot of, lot of sticker shock. Well, it's, it's you know, your question to Representative Perez asked for what about the financial impact. I want everybody who's listening to actually think about what's coming to Florida condominiums real quick. We all, you know, and I don't mean to get political, but we have an inflation problem. Insurance rates are doubling or tripling. Mm -hmm. There's going to be no more waiver of reserves. We're going to have mandatory inspections and repairs. And what everybody's forgetting about is on January 1st, 2024, your condo better either have sprinklers or an engineered life safety system. If you want to talk sticker shock, these numbers are going to be mind-blowing. So the days of moving to Florida, thinking that you're going to buy a condo and live off your Social Security check, those days are gone. In addition to that, in addition to that, I'm telling you now, there will be hundreds, if not thousands, of senior citizen Floridians that will be foreclosed on in the coming future. I called it before, and I'm calling it again now. And and that'll be driven by what these reserve by studies, the requirement those, to sock away money, and then thus yeah, higher by, by, higher by assessments. Everything I just, by everything I just mentioned, we're starting to see foreclosures already simply based on inflation alone. We haven't even started this new statute yet. Insurance rates are tripling. Like I said, right. na- then we factor in no more waiver of reserves. Yeah, mandatory, very expensive inspections and very expensive repairs. There's no chance a senior citizen on a fixed income is going to be able to afford any of this. Eric, let's take a couple of phone calls. Because she kept kicking the can down the road. Yeah, Marcella has been listening in and very patient in North Miami. Go ahead, Marcella. Thanks for calling. Yes. Hi. Uh, I I lost her. Hello? There you go. We can hear you now, Marcella. Go ahead. The representative just took the words out of my mouth. I live in North Miami. We we live uh, across the Biscayne Bay. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, our building is going to be 50 next year, and we uh, have consistently, the residents have consistently waived the reserve. Um, I didn't, but uh, the majority voted against it. Now we were hit with a big assessment last year because the building needs to pass the 50-year inspection, and we live across the bay from uh, Surfside. 
so there's a lot of repairs. We just uh, voted and got a credit um, for $5 million to repair the building. Yeah. And uh, and then yesterday we were uh, told that the insurance was dropped. The insurance company dropped us. So our insurance went from 700000 to $1 million. Uh, that has not yet been reflected in the maintenance fees, which went up last year, yeah. plus the assessment. And then now the reserves that will come to us right. uh, in a couple of years. So the cost... No, not in a couple of years. In, in a year. In a, in a, in a, year. In a year, Marcella, yeah. So the, the, the costs are huge. We were just talking with a neighbor about whether it, it makes sense to remain in this building or move to Brickle to a newer building. With, oh, and we don't have sprinklers. So the sprinklers <laughs> are going to be uh, have to pay for. So... Does it make sense to, and then if not, where do we move to? Because right. we are close to retirement as well. Yeah. There's no, Marce- perfect There's Marce- no perfect answer. Yeah, uh, Marcel, I appreciate you listening and calling with that, and thank you for walking through uh, the real-life experience, Eric, that you mapped out there. I have just 60 seconds or so left, but w- no clear answer. What are the options? She mentioned well, you know, the building maybe borrowing money for the uh, maintenance, but that's still got to every- be paid back. Every condo is going to be borrowing, but really quick, I'd just like to get in my one major flaw with the bill. Yep. Um, I, I drafted legislation that would have required directors and officers to get certified each year by taking an educational class. It passed the first stop in the House 18 to 0. It passed the first stop in the Senate 7 to 0. 25 nothing. Education will save lives, yet this bill deliberately removed the educational requirement for directors to get certified, yet in the same bill it warns the directors repeatedly that if you fail to follow the law, it's a breach of your fiduciary duty. And under the current law, though, they have no obligation to learn it or even read it. Mm-hmm. It's insanity. Put the education requirement back in, and I got no problem with the bill. Eric Glazer, uh, attorney with Glazer and Associates. Marcella called you a representative, gave you a bit of a, a, a promotion there, Eric, yeah. uh, as a condominium uh, lawyer. But appreciate you sharing your uh, expertise and uh, perspective with us here today. Much Thank appreciated. you so much. Thanks for having me. You as well, Eric. Hope all is well. That is for the. Uh, that is today's edition of the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tway. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. News director is Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. The director of radio operations is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives is the technical director this week. Elliot Rodriguez answered the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling and listening. Have a happy and safe Memorial Day. This program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.